This is Chris. Welcome to episode 167 of X Lapsed, where today we're going to be discussing a book in which absolutely nothing happens. Nothing at all. Nothing important. Nothing senses shattering. Nothing noteworthy. Nothing at all. Well, those of you who have already read this issue of Marauders know I'm uh, I'm just uh, having a little fun with you. This is a... Uh, this is gonna, something's going to happen in this issue we're going to want to discuss. <laughs> now, this is Marauders number 18, which had an April 2021 cover date. The story's called Saving Face. Written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Stefano Caselli and Matteo Lali. Colors Edgar Delgado, letters VT's Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale February 17 of 2021. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page. Uh, it's an anonymous UN ambassador talking about the lawlessness of Madripoor. I mean, because Madripoor is uh, lawless. Now we really open with comics, and uh, Magneto and Professor Xavier are arriving in the lawless Madripoor for a ceremony being held by Emma Frost. But that's all they really know. Charles asks Magneto if he knows anything about what's to go down. He asks, you know, only because he knows that Eric has been helping Emma with the upcoming Hellfire Gala. Now, Charles is surprised to see the warm reception they're receiving uh, by a bunch of street kids, but, I mean, beggars can't be choosers. Now, Emma and the Marauders are stood before a hospital, and she is just about to make an announcement that we will probably be spending a whole lot of time talking about. Now, this is an event so large that it's being televised throughout Madripoor. And so, Omen as Verindy are also watching it play out via television. And they are none too happy. Now, as we learned a little while back, the Verendi government had grand plans for demolishing Lowtown and building a bunch of high-rises that uh, nobody would probably want to live in, but, you know, what are you going to do? Now, when Call Me Kate found out about this upon visiting with that Fisher family who rescued and nursed Lockheed back to health, uh, she called into Emma to see what they might do to stop this from playing out. And so, Hellfire has been buying up properties all over Lowtown, including uh, they built this brand new hospital, which they say will be free to all citizens. Emma then has Proteus... You know, one of the five here, he, he is here for a very important reason. She has him pull a banner off the giant red cross on the side of the building, revealing who this hospital is in honor of. Any guesses? Well, here's a hint. Uh, it's one of Mutantum's most staunch human allies. Well, we don't know her to be human anymore, but uh, for the longest time we thought she was. It's Maura McTaggart. Huh. 
Okay. There's also a statue of Mora, and she's depicted as wearing that floppy, like, blossom hat from the scene that we saw like a dozen times during Hoxpox, which... Huh. That's interesting. Now, Magneto and Charles are, you know, shocked. Just like I assume many of us are, I know I was. Kitty then thanks Emma for putting this all together, to which Emma says was all worth it just to see the look on Charles and Eric's faces. Um, well, uh, does that, does that mean that she, uh, uh, does she know, uh, uh, we'll talk about that later. Let's hop into a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got Professor X, Magneto, Emma Frost, Callisto, Iceman, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Pyro, and Mask. Uh, the Morlock, of course. Now back to comics, and Callisto is giving Mask a job at the hospital. Now, if you recall, the Morlock Mask, currently of, uh, Rio Verde, Arizona, He's got the power to change people's appearance with a touch, which was traditionally used in some very, you know, horrific ways. Here, however, Callisto has other plans. Mask will perform the duty of a plastic surgeon. Now, he doesn't quite understand what she's getting at here, and he's both annoyed and a bit nervous. Callisto brings him over to a hopeful family who have a child with a cleft palate. Mask now sort of gets it but he's still very nervous about his abilities and pulling off what's expected of him. He touches the baby, and bada-bing, he fixes the child's palate. The parents grab Mask in a big old bear hug. After they leave, he looks at his hands with the realization that he has the ability to do some good, and Callisto smiles knowingly. The scene shifts, and now we're at a pretty gross saloon, uh, probably one of the place's old patches probably had a scrap or two in, Iceman, Pyro, and Bishop head inside and ask for the owner. Now, Bobby offers the fella a duffel bag full of money for the bar, the land, and the whorehouse next door. Dude takes the money and runs. And so, Hellfire now owns yet another bit of Madriporian property. I tell you, I like that they're showing us this. As it, I mean, I mean, it shows us the process, you know? It's not just Emma Frost sitting in front of a computer screen telling someone on the phone to buy something, right? The Marauders are actually out there pounding the pavement in order to get this done. Now, meanwhile, Omen as Varendi are, uh, well, they're still angry. Cade Kilgore and Max von Frankenstein then reveal a vat full of monstrosities. Now, it's some body horror cyborgish fellas that they're calling the New Reavers. And I could swear we've already seen some baddies who look just like this. Maybe an X-Force? Or maybe I'm conflating them with uh, Tarn the Uncaring's crew from Arako or Ament or wherever the hell they were. Whatever the case, they're pretty gross. We jump back to the saloon and our marauders share a drink to commemorate the occasion. Suddenly, the new Reavers attack. And so, for the next several pages, we've got a bar fight. Iceman recognizes one of these baddies, and here we learn the gimmick of these new Reavers. Now, this guy, who Bobby recognizes, is the one that he broke the arm off of back on that ship where Bishop found Call Me Corpse's Kate. I mean, Call Me Kate's corpse. Another two of the fellas were maimed by Wolverine right there in Madripoor, and another was wrecked by Gorgon during the Davos Summit way back in, I think it was X-Men number four. And I tell you what, gang, it's going to suck when we're going to have to start clarifying which volume of post-Hoxpox X-Men we're talking about at the, uh, during the summer, in it. So yeah, the new Reavers are comprised of dudes who the Krakoan contingent have injured and or maimed, which 
you know, it fits the mold for how the original Reavers came together back in the long ago. They were Wade Cole, Angelo Macon, or Mackin, and Murray Reese, the Hellfire Knights that Wolverine took out during the famous Wolverine Alone story back in X-Men number 133. And uh, that's X-Men Volume 1, by the way. So, they fight. Now, Bishop goads them into shooting him so he can repay the favor with a kinetic blast. This blows out the front of the bar, where, as luck or Verendi propaganda would have it, a newswoman is already on the scene reporting on the fracas. The marauders are made to look like quite the menace, and so they hightail it back to the boat. Info page. Bishop cluing Beast in on the latest mission. Now, if we remember, Lucas is working as something of a double agent here. It's, uh, this letter here is basically a recitation of everything we just saw. It's wholly unnecessary, and only here as a reminder that Bishop is reporting things back to Hank, I would assume. We shift over to the United Nations, where Madripoor Ambassador Donald Pierce is appealing to have the Marauders kept off the shores of Madripoor due to, you know, all the violence and whatnot. Which, I mean, yeah, was an explosive bar fight, but doesn't that sort of thing happen most nights on Madripoor? I mean, we just read how lawless it is, and I mean, Wolverine does more damage than that on his own. And while on the subject, I mean, this might be inconvenient, but Wolverine, if his solo book is to be believed, is currently there. I mean, he's at the Legacy Auction House on Madripoor, so... Eh, what are you gonna do? Whatever the case, the UN seems to buy into Pierce's plea, and the Marauders are now banned from Madripoor. Now, it's worth noting that Pierce offers to turn the discussion over to Krakoa's UN delegate, only whoever that might be isn't here. It's just an empty chair, so... I ask you this, have we ever learned or even thought about who this might be? I'm not sure. I know Gene sat in on the UN during uh, the first issue of X-Men Red, right? Uh, you know, the, the last time they tried starting a mutant nation. No, no, the other last time. The other, other last time they tried making a mutant nation. They, they sure do this a lot, don't they? Hmm. Anyway, back to Ominous Verandy for the end here. The Hellfire kids are celebrating their victory by watching a riot play out in Lowtown. They send the Reavers in to uh, do something that I'm guessing we'll see play out next issue. That'll do it for Marauders. Next episode, Cyclops rejoins the champions. Huh. But for today, let's stick with the Marauders chatter here because we got a lot to dig into here. Um, let's start with uh, the Reavers. This is a great way to use some X-Men lore to create, you know, an all-new threat here. We don't have enough threats in this era. Now, as mentioned, the original Reavers were the baddies who were maimed by the X-Men, or Wolverine, anyway. And here, it's, you know, pretty much the same thing. This also shows us that there was a measure of consequence to, the, to how ruthless the Marauders have been during their battles... And I think, and I've mentioned this before, this is one of the things that kept me from, like, 100% falling for this book, right? It was always kind of just there, that they these these characters were hyper-violent, and uh, it just felt out of character. I mean, we had Kitty, like, phasing bars in between, you know, people's legs and stuff, and then, re, you know, unfazing them, so they would be, like, stuck together. Uh, Iceman freezing and then smashing limbs, it didn't feel like the way these characters ought to be behaving, and now they're going to have to own up to it. So I, I really like that here. It makes it feel like all of this was uh, purpose-driven, right? All of this ruthlessness, all of this just, I guess, barbarism um, was building to something, and uh, it was building to this. 
Let's talk about the uh, Marauders actually being shown putting in the work to buy up the Madriporian real estate. Uh, I found that very, very refreshing. Uh, so often in comics these days, especially Marvel, uh, this sort of transaction would have been, like, relegated to, like, a bunch of people sitting in a dimly lit, monitor-filled room saying, you know, make it so. Like they're in the first arc of a Netflix original series or something, or I guess any random Bendis comic. These are really the kind of scenes we ought to be seeing if this is going to be, you know, one of the Marauders' goals for this arc. So I gotta say, I was happy that this wasn't relegated to just a group of suits uh, making things happen, or an info page. This was uh, actually something they showed us, and it led to a, uh, a fairly decent scene, right? Let's scoot over to the United Nations. Um, seeing Donald Pierce with his cyborg parts addressing the UN was pretty hilarious. Uh, I did like it, though. I thought it was okay. Having the Marauders banned from entering Madripoor is... Mm, a little bit convenient, perhaps. Especially, I mean, when the book tells us over and over and over again how lawless Madripoor, especially Lowtown, really is... It seems weird to point out this one bar fight as reason enough to ban an entire group from, uh, you know, putting their feet on the ground here. I mean, even as we speak, aren't Wolverine and Maverick slicing and dicing through an auction house right there? I don't know. Whatever the case, I suppose it does move the story forward. And it also makes us wonder who the uh, Krakoan UN delegate might be. I mean, has this ever been stated? I figure if it were, you know, we might have gotten a name drop here, uh... Maybe it's leading to a reveal. Maybe it's not. Who knows? So really, that's that's about it, isn't it? Absolutely nothing else happened in this issue. Oh, oh, <clears throat> we haven't talked about art yet. The art, um, as always, was very nice. So yeah, I, I guess that's all we have to say about this issue, isn't it? All right. All right, all right. Let's talk about Mora. Um, not even sure where to begin. It seems like Emma definitely knows something. Uh, what and how much remains to be seen. But this does raise a whole lot of questions, uh, both good questions as well as inconvenient ones. Um, now Emma is a pretty powerful telepath, right? Yeah? Uh, so it might stand to reason that she, along with the cuckoos who are always nearby may have been able to, I don't know, uh, pick up a stray thought or two from Charles or Eric in the time that they've been all living on Krakoa. Or maybe even before that. I think the gimmick here is that Xavier and Magneto maybe voluntarily forgot that Mora about the whole Mora thing until she reemerged. Like, I mean, they knew her, clearly. But they only knew what we readers knew for all those years, right? Like that she was a human ally based out of Muir Island. A sort of kind of love interest for Charles, and also the mother of Proteus. Maybe they didn't know about the mutant bits, or just allowed themselves to forget about them. Until now-ish. Until Mora was ready to let them know. Maybe. But, I mean, Emma is still Emma, and she's about as powerful as the story needs her to be at any given time, so I could totally buy into any sort of reveal here. But let's play this out for the Krakoa era. In giant-sized Magneto, Eric dines with Emma and then goes off to buy her the Faroe Island, right? Xavier even brings that up here today, that Eric had a hand in helping Emma arrange the upcoming Hellfire Gala. And I don't think that was by accident. I, I do wonder if Emma may have gleaned a little bit of information uh, 
during uh, that little uh, that little mission they had together. And you you know we we also saw Magneto get drunk over an X Force or Wolverine, one of the Percy books, which. I mean, as one of the two guys on the island keeping this tremendous and seismic secret, probably not the best look in hindsight, is it? I I didn't think of it then, but having Magneto get sloppy drunk to the point where he basically passes out, that's kind of a matter of national security, isn't it? I mean, he might be passed out, Emma walks by and is like, okay, let's see what he's thinking. He's not guarding himself from anything, and it's just, oh, well, there you go. Now, whatever the case, whether Emma knows or just caught a stray thought and has, you know, suspicions, that all remains to be seen. But what she's doing here is definitely with purpose. I mean, this isn't a coincidence. She said it right there. She wanted to see Charles and Eric's reaction, and uh, they didn't disappoint. Also, again, the appearance of Maura's statue can't be ignored either. Uh, She's wearing that big old floppy blossom hat, which I'm pretty sure we've only seen her wearing in her Hoxpox flashback scene with Xavier. So that's gotta mean something, right? Now, um, having Proteus, Mora's son, as part of the unveiling was a nice touch as well. I could have used a Banshee appearance, but we can't have everything, I guess. Um, so what does this mean? Um, I guess all we can do is theorize, right? I'm now looking forward to the Hellfire Gala even more... Because part of me thinks um, (laughs) the night might just end with Emma presenting a surprise guest of honor. Which, if true, may shift the power structure in Krakoa a little bit. Which, again, if true, might turn the original mission statement of this era right on its ear. I think we're headed for some answers. Finally, huh? And uh, I can't wait. Overall, I'd say this is definitely one, if you're following these books, this is one you're going to want to have in your collection. Um, A great story, great build, great art, and finally, the appearance of actual movement on this era's overarching story. So, uh, you know, we don't get Amora mentioned very often. She's always looming, but we don't hear about her, and we we certainly don't see her all that often. So, to get this here, it's a... it, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna make you open your eyes a bit. So had a really good time with it, and I think, uh, I think you all will as well. But uh, that's all I got to say about that. I'm sure we're gonna be coming back to this issue many times over the course of the next several episodes here as we uh, learn more and uh, reflect. But for now, let's hop into the mailbag here. We actually have a letter today, and you know, I was a, uh, I was assuming that the mailbag was gonna dry up as we got closer to being current. Uh, I know a lot of folks are following this via Marvel Unlimited, and Lord only knows what their uh, release structure or uh, methodology is over there. I hear that uh, sometimes it's drips and drabs, other times it's a gush. So I'm just going to have to accept for now that uh, the mail is going to slow up just a bit. But uh, we do have a letter, and it's from our friend Andrew Franklin. He's talking about cable number seven and eight. He says, we knew it was going to happen, but I still groaned a little when we saw that strife is back. I'm just glad it's not a teen strife. The angst and melodrama would have been too much. And yeah, it's it's so weird. Um, I feel like we spent so much of the uh, late 90s and into the 2000s trying to get away from, you know, Cable and Strife being, you know, joined at the hip. They moved Cable in, like, other directions than just being constantly taunted by, uh, by his, you know, darker half here, his clone. And it feels like uh, of late here, we're kind of... Uh, 
it's very reductionist, right? We're just looking at like the hits. It's we know Cable, we know Strife, so we have to have Cable and Strife together. Um, I, I know we were all expecting to see him eventually. And uh, yeah, here we be, right? Um, like I mentioned when we talked about this issue, I'm pretty sure Strife was one of the threats in the prior uh, X-Force volume. Uh, the one that had Kid Cable in the, uh, in the leader chair. At least I think he was leading. Uh, I know he was part of the team, or he was part of the book anyway, but... Uh, I did see Strife on some of those covers, so feels like we just can't get away from them. It's, uh, this is just going to be the way things are. Now, Andrew continues. It's a shame that this series is canceled, but it feels like the creative team was given enough notice because these two issues really felt focused on advancing the plot briskly. I thought Domino's powers were used very well in issue 8, letting Cable stumble upon the villain's lair by dumb luck. It probably saved Duggan about an issue of Investigation Plot. And the whole bit with the space rock was a neat showcase of her luck. I think that even Strife will be written well by Duggan once he properly shows up. I have little doubt that Duggan will be able to uh, work his magic on Strife here. And, you know, I never had a problem with Strife. Um, I thought Strife was a decent enough character, a nice little twist. I could do with a little bit less of him. I mean, I like the Joker, too, but can we please give him a week off? You know, he doesn't need to bother Batman every single week. But uh, I'm I'm I think Duggan will do a fantastic job here, and uh, I think advancing the plot briskly is the best way to put this here because I said it felt truncated but not rushed, or it felt truncated but not uh, not you know overly compressed here. But I think the way you described it is much better here. It just the plot is advancing briskly, which is to say it's it feels organic, it feels. It feels about the right speed, right? Uh, as you mentioned here, we probably would have gotten an issue of cable, you know, cable PI, and uh, I'm not necessarily sure that's something we need. So this is a this is an okay pace for us to be uh, going out on here. Andrew continues. I think it's interesting that the topic of clones has been popping up in some of the X books lately, and now Cable has to deal with his own army of clones. What would happen to a batch of Cable clones that were rescued from strife? We know that the resurrection for them is a sticky question, but are they allowed to live on Krakoa? What if the clones are a bunch of babies? I wonder if we'll get another piece of the clone puzzle by the end of this series. And that's a great question that I didn't even think of as we were reading this here, because, you know, Domino didn't, uh, she didn't take any prisoners, right? But what if she did? Would they live on Krakoa? Would they be part of Krakoa? Would they just be sent to the hole? I mean, what do they do with a, uh... With a new clone And I mean we talked about that briefly In the uh, discussion of X-Factor Where we heard Or where we learned that uh, Maybe Prodigy didn't die And we asked you know what happens If the other Prodigy comes back The original Prodigy How do they handle that I mean he's not a mutant anymore But there's an option to make him a mutant Do they just let him live his life Quietly as a as a depowered mutant While they have their own version That's it's a, it's a question that I think I think we're going to get an answer to, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Now, Andrew continues. He says, I wonder how the Council will feel about time-displaced versions of characters. Do Kid Cable and Old Man Cable count as the same person? If Old Man Cable replaces Kid Cable at the end of the series, like some think will happen, what happens to Kid Cable's Cerebro backups? And will either of the Cables remember being Venomized in Sword, or will they just ignore that crossover like I am? <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> I said this uh, when we were talking about the uh, the King and Black issues here. I was like, yeah, no, we're never going to talk about this again, are we? I mean, 
We're not talking about empire. We're not talking about whatever the hell came before empire. We're not talking about anything. It's uh, the these these crossover events, these mass bloated events. They're only topical as they're going on. We don't reflect on them the way we used to. I mean, and some of the old crossovers were like really not that great. Things like Atlantis attacks or the Evolutionary War, but they're remembered more fondly. They're well, actually, I shouldn't say they're remembered more fondly. They're just plain remembered. Where, I mean, has anybody said anything about Empire? Could anybody tell me what came before Empire? I, I just don't know. Now, as for the question here, I'm wondering, and maybe this is just because I have uh, Extermination fresh in my mind here, but I wonder if we get the Extermination-style ending. You know, if Old Man Cable does, in fact, replace Kid Cable, maybe he'll get all of the memories, just like the original five did. You know, if you, if you didn't read Extermination or follow Ex-Lapstination, which is available in the archives, uh, that ended with the original five going, the original five time-displaced characters going back to the past. But when they reached a certain point in the timeline, all of their memories went into the adult original five. So, and we're actually going to be talking a bit about this next episode when Cyclops has his little adventure with the champions, because... Adult Cyclops never joined the Champions, but when he came back as a time-displaced teen, he did join the Champions. But Adult Cyclops now knows he was part of the Champions, so it's uh, it's sticky. But I'm guessing that that's probably the easiest way to reconcile um, these adventures if, in fact, Old Man Cable does come back to uh, reclaim his, uh, his name and his pouches, I guess. Now Andrew continues... It's a shame that the festival derailed the story, but I'm still not sure what the point of this series will ultimately be, but I'm still enjoying it. So until we get a young and old Cable team-up book called Cables, make my next lapsed. I, I wonder if they'll just call it Cable and Cable. You know, we had Cable and Deadpool, then we had Deadpool and Cable. Maybe it'll just be Cable and Cable. And uh, we can just we can always just guess which Cable comes first, uh, per which issue we're reading, I suppose. But uh, you're right. The uh, the festival did indeed uh, derail this one here. Uh, as we talked about with Cable number eight, we have Old Man Cable in that another time, another place, uh, you know, dealy. And I couldn't remember the last time we talked about that. I know we did, but I, I think it's been since issue two, which that's a long, long time ago. It's uh, definitely something that did a disservice to the flow of this book here because we had to set every... like The entire story was, was just put to the side so we can get, you know, the Galadorian Space Knights, so we can get the sword, so we can go to the satellite. So much of... Uh, this book really didn't get a chance to do what it needed to do to establish itself. And, I mean, you launch a book called Cable... In 2020 or 20, yeah, it was 2020, I suppose. People are gonna have a reaction to that, right? They're either gonna be like, "Ooh, a cable book," or they're gonna go, "Ooh, a cable book." And I know, I know what side I uh, fell on when uh, we got the uh, news that we were getting a cable. It was like, "Oh, I gotta buy cable now." But I'm a completionist, so Marvel didn't have to worry about me. It's the other folks out there, the casuals, who uh, might see a cable book on the shelf and be like, "Nope, not for me," <laughs> and. Uh, it's, you know, one of those uh, self-fulfilling prophecies at that point. But um, I'd like to thank you so much, Andrew, for writing in and chatting me up about those issues of Cable. That'll do it for the mailbag here, but we do have some, well, not so much breaking news. We have news. Uh, we have news, and it's news that I missed. 
If you're listening to the last couple of episodes, I've been filling us in, or at least chronicling, because I'm sure everybody knows these things. If you're listening to this show, you probably know uh, what's going on in the world of uh, of the X-Men election. But I figure it's a good place to chronicle it, and uh, hey, it'll extend the, uh, the runtime of this episode by like, I don't know, 75 seconds. But... We do have an election update. It's actually the second update here, and one that hit uh, Marvel's Twitter, I think, uh, a few days ago. I don't follow Marvel's Twitter. I really don't. I don't know how to use the front page of Twitter anyway, but uh, I certainly don't follow Marvel's because I'm assuming most of it is about their television and movie stuff, uh, both of which I really don't care about. But our second election update removes two more from contention as the last member of the uh, new X-Men team. And we've got Boom Boom and Tempo both out, as if, I mean, come on. So now we're down to the final four. And uh, the the one I voted for is still in there. The one I'm sure is going to win is still in there. But uh, let's go through them here. The final four consists of Banshee, who I voted for, Polaris, who's going to win, Cannonball, and Sunspot. I'm guessing over the next couple of days we're going to, you know, maybe drop one or two more of these and... uh, you know, I wonder if they're going to spoil it before the book comes out. I mean, it is Marvel, and if uh, I guess if USA Today has a slow news day, they might uh, rattle Marvel's cage, and uh, Marvel will give them whatever they want to get that uh, few minutes of mainstream publicity. But uh, I hope not. I hope it is a uh, is something that they hold on to for the for the Hellfire Gala here. But that'll do it for the news. Really not a whole heck of a lot going on. The news sites I look at are more interested in uh, CGC auctions now than actual comics news. So uh, if you guys know me, you know I really couldn't care less about CGC uh, auctions. So uh, I have very little use for those sites. But that'll do it for the news here. If you guys have a news tip you'd like to send along we can discuss on the show, please feel free to do that. Also, if you just want to talk about whatever you want... Do that as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where uh, right now I'm working on a series of articles where we're going to take a look at the last days of Maura McTaggart. Uh, you know, the Dream's End arc from uh, the year about 2000-ish. Um, I'm taking my time with this one because I'm trying to make this a fairly inclusive project where I'll kind of be annotating and also, uh, you know, talking about some of the characters that are involved in this. It's going to be basically a cosmic treadmill, uh, script by the end of the day here. If, uh, folks are familiar with, uh, Reggie and my, uh, old cosmic treadmill show here, chock full of information. I- I'm hoping to do the same for this series of, uh, Mora articles, but, They'll be coming very, very soon, I hope. So yeah, that is chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Now, the Facebook group is 90s X-Men, and feel free to sign up and share all your thoughts there, uh, like our friend Ed Moore did uh, sharing the uh, election results that I missed. So thank you for that, Ed, and uh, thanks to everybody for uh, taking part in the conversations over there. That is, again, 90s X-Men on Facebook. We're just shy of 50 members, so let's see if we can uh, get that over. And uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you could check out chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise. But that'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for letting me be part of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Jesús. 